0: Hey, what you're about to listen to is a podcast I did with Scott Freund from SFR Productions about things you might not know about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Scott is a Pearl Harbor expert who created the documentary Pearl Harbor, The Real Story over on Amazon. We talk about midget submarines, spies, rare footage of the USS Arizona explosion, and even some conspiracies. But without further ado, this is Things You May Not Know About the Attack on Pearl Harbor with Scott Freund. All right. uh, Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel. We cover the entire history of the Asia Pacific War from 1937 all the way up to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. Joined here by fellow YouTuber, Scott. How's it going?
1: Good. Very good. Thank you very much for having me on tonight. I totally appreciate it. It's a great honor
0: not a problem. And of course, this episode is timely as we're coming up to Pearl Harbor, I thought who better to go to than yourself, actually, why don't we start off by uh, you just telling us a little bit about your YouTube channel and your background.
1: Um, Well, my name is Scott Freund. Uh, My YouTube channel is SFR Productions, and I'm kind of an amateur historian um documentary filmmaker and i got my start doing documentaries about pearl harbor uh, my first was pearl harbor the real story and it turned out uh quite well it actually was sold by the national park service bookstore there at the arizona memorial uh, starting in 2000 and it's been sold there up until probably about 20 2020 and when they kind of went away from dvd sales um with that study of pearl harbor i've extended into other areas of the Pacific and into Europe. So being an amateur historian, I just love to travel and then document what I see and the history about what was there. So that's kind of what I do uh, as my hobby um, is sharing my love of history with people.
0: Awesome. And stating all of that, there is a lot to know about Pearl Harbor, and there's especially a lot that goes unsaid. And that was, I kind of think, the inspiration for the subsections that we chose for this episode. I wanted to find things that people um, don't know so much about, the lesser known facts about Pearl Harbor. And uh, this is going to be broken down into five videos. And then there will be a full podcast, most likely on Podbean and perhaps on the YouTube channel and perhaps also on the Kings and Generals channel. But uh, stating that to the audience, I'll just let you know the five sections that we're going to cover today. The first one is the story of Takeo Yoshikawa. The second one will be the midget submarine attacks in Pearl Harbor. The third one will be the military facilities that were hit prior to the ships and afterwards with the second wave, of course. The fourth one, the extent of the damage to the ships, the significance of what really happened at Pearl Harbor and what wasn't hit for that matter. Uh, The fifth one, the Arizona footage story that's going to be brought by scott and the last one is kind of a silly lad on the sixth one is going to be silly a silly conspiracy theory one in particular that's known as the backdoor theory which anyone who uh, is a pearl harbor enthusiast has definitely heard about this one and all the various aspects of it so stating all of that I might be taking scott a bit hostage here with this one story and uh out of all the things we're going to be talking about today i'm going to admit to the audience this is going to be a little bit more of a scripted one because i wanted to kind of give a full story as to what was going on with this but this is a story of the main spy who was at hawaii and helped with the entire operation for pearl harbor and um he was not he wasn't very well known for a very long time and he never got official recognition in the end and Had kind of a very sad fate hey everyone i just wanted to let you know i now have a patreon account found at www.patreon.com the pacific war channel over there you can find exclusive patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons and other benefits like early access to all of my content live hangouts your name in the end credits and much much more so please go check it out and uh, I'll, i'll tell his story and please pitch in if you have any questions or you know anything because this is going to be just kind of a rendition of, a, I hope, a 10-minute and less story of this guy. You can think of him as kind of a James Bond figure, because he kind of was. So Takeo Yoshikawa was born in Chikoku, Japan. He was the son of a cop, and he graduated from the Japanese Naval Academy at Itajima in 1933, top of his class. He uh, served in the Imperial Japanese Navy briefly aboard one cruiser, the Asama, and a submarine before he began training as a naval pilot, and this was in the early 30s. It turns out he has some kind of medical condition, and when he went up flying, his uh, intestines hurt so severely, he couldn't fly. So due to this medical reason, he had to stop pursuing this, and he was discharged from the IGN in 1936. And apparently, he, in his own uh, testimony, he almost sought to kill himself as a result, because this really was his passion in life. But in 1937, he got right back into it, this time joining the IGN as the intelligence officer for the third division, and he specialized in the United States and the U.K. Now, by uh, the process of all of his work, which um, was extensive, he was a very hardworking person. Uh, you can actually read his testimony online. That's in the U.S. database for the Navy. By 1940, he, uh, he passed the Foreign Ministry English Examination and he became the leading expert on the United States Navy. He literally told people he could pick out every single silhouette of every ship. And I do have a quote from him on this uh, part of his life It goes as such. In any event, by 1940, I was the Naval General Staff's acknowledged American expert. I knew by then every United States man of war and aircraft type by name, hull number, configuration and technical characteristics. And I knew, too, a great deal of general information about the United States Naval bases at Manila, Guam, and Pearl Harbor. My previous detailed studies of the Mahan's theories of sea power and more recent publications on American naval tactics and strategy served to pull together in usable form my broad knowledge of the United States Navy. And so it was that, on a gray, cold winter day, at the end of 1939, my chief called me into his office, and he said, Yoshikawa, you are ready now. else, Yoshikawa, he was being sent on a much more important mission than he could ever know. He received a post in Hawaii as the vice consul under the fake name Tadashi Monimura, and he arrived in Hawaii in March of 1941, alongside Nagano Kita, the new consul general for Japan, who was the, um, one of the only men who knew about his mission for a brief amount of time, although... Yoshikawa will deal with other people. He was sent as a spy, as you can imagine, and the console position was simply a cover story. He got an apartment overlooking Pearl Harbor and he began wandering about the island of Oahu, observing and taking notes of the fleet movements and their security measures. He even rented a small aircraft at John Rogers Airport to fly over Oahu to get a better look at the docks and facilities. And that is an interesting story I can't go into, but the fact that he was able to do that is pretty surprising. And uh, he took this a step further. Uh, He actually dove under the harbor using a breathing device, which I actually don't know what it it would have been like back then. And uh, he performed a real James Bond operation there, uh, looking underneath the harbor. And he also worked alongside the ABOVA, the German's military intelligence branch. They had an agent in Hawaii named Bernard Kuhn, and another Japanese agent named Kokichi Seki, but he was a junior uh, actually learning from Yoshikawa, so he wasn't a quote-unquote real spy then. And uh, there's a whole other story behind the German involvement in this, which we might get into later in another section. (laughs) Now, although Hawaii had arguably the largest population of Japanese Americans, In Yoshikawa's testimony, he tried to avoid them as a potential resource because he believed that they were not trustworthy because he thought that their loyalty was to the United States, of which he would have been quite right. The majority were. Yoshikawa would often leave the consulate building dressing casually, so kind of like a tourist. You could actually picture him in a Hawaiian shirt and glasses, like that's the way I would envision it. I have seen a photo that looked like that. And he acquired two personal drivers who drove him around Oahu in personal vehicles rather than the consulate vehicles to avoid attention so he wasn't an idiot he was actually pretty good at his job and it'll go without saying uh, he does pull it off Uh, He even taught one of the drivers all the silhouettes and how to identify them so that this man could help him uh, Watch some of the ships so do some of the work for him. The man's name was Richard Kotsushidoro and uh, so he helped with surveillance One spot Yoshikawa loved to visit the most was Ito's Soda Stand right beside Pearl City Landing. It was a popular place where ship personnel would come and go when they're on assignments. He would dress like a laborer to try and blend in with other workers, and he would listen in on conversations to acquire more intel. It always makes me think of um, the 1940s when they had those films telling the troops, you know, don't talk in bars, quiet down, the enemy's always listening. It's Yoshikawa. So, he observed all sorts of places like the East Lock where the aircraft carriers were, and he would often count how many vegetable trucks would go by to predict the departure times for certain ships. It's very uh, very interesting to learn how the spy trade worked. Another place he was famous to go to was the Chonchoro Japanese Tea House on the Aueo Heights, which had a second floor telescope overlooking the harbor. And he befriended a waitress there and he used her as espionage cover bringing her around like she was his date and they pretended to be sightseeing he took this a step further and he actually began going around with a geisha which would have been interesting to see and a major piece of intelligence that he found was he calculated the air turbulence along currents coming into the harbor this would have been very useful for the pilots when they were performing their torpedo runs for example The intelligence Yoshikawa attained was sent to Tokyo using the Purple Code, very famous, by the Japanese foreign ministry, which the United States did crack. But his messages were never truly discovered because the consulate in Hawaii was considered a low priority, as most messages that were coming in and out were for commercial uh, in nature. And to be honest, there was so many messages going in and out, and so few people working for the United States' uh, cryptanalysts, that they couldn't get all these messages in the first place. So they had to prioritize. Uh, One message sent to Yoshikawa did grab the attention of the United States though, on September the 24th, 1941. The message divided Pearl Harbor into five distinct zones and requested the location and number of warships indicated on a grid plot of the harbor. That would have been very suspicious, but because of short staff and other intelligence priorities, the message was dismissed. Yoshikawa reported, The double-row mooring pattern for the U.S. battleships, a lack of aerial patrols in Oahu's northern section, which would prove to be very critical pieces of information. On the 5th of December, he received a direct message asking whether the United States ships were protected by anti-aircraft weapons or anti-submarine nets, and his response could have easily tipped off the Americans, but his messages, again, were not discovered nor decrypted until a day after the attack. And I have a quote from Yoshikawa. It was from his last report. Oh, it was his last report on December the 6th. Uh, December the 6th, local time. Vessels moored in harbor. Nine battleships, three Class B cruisers, three seaplane tenders, 17 destroyers. Entering the harbor are four Class B cruisers, three destroyers. All aircraft carriers and heavy cruisers have departed the harbor. No indication of any changes in the U.S. fleet or anything unusual. He also, in his memoirs, recounted this after he had sent the message. So it was that the last brief message I was working on alone in my silent office on that far off night of December the 6th, 1941. Became the final intelligence report in which the Japanese task force commander based the attack on Pearl Harbor. I am a common man and my triumph in life has been small, but for a moment at least I held history in the palm of my hand. Quite theatrical, that passage. Yoshikawa surprisingly had no knowledge of the planned attack on Pearl Harbor, but being in the Navy and being a spy in Pearl Harbor, he did assume that there was going to be some kind of attack. Uh, he treated his mission extremely uh, critically. He was very serious about it. On the morning of December the 7th, Yoshikawa was having breakfast around almost 8 o'clock in the morning when the first bombs fell in Pearl Harbor. He switched on the shortwave radio, And he listened to the 8 o'clock news on Radio Tokyo, where he heard the phrase, East Wind Rain, which was said twice by the announcer. And Yoshikawa explains this in his memoirs. East Wind Rain, the announcer had carefully enunciated during the weather forecast, this meant the Imperial Council in Tokyo had decided for war with the United States. If they had said, North Wind Cloudy, it would have meant war with the Soviet Union. West Wind Clear would have meant war with Great Britain. Kita and I stood up immediately, walked to the consul general's office, and we began burning our code books and secret diplomatic information intelligence instructions. The FBI would find him at 8.30 a.m., so he had a brief window to do all that, in the consulate building, and there was no incriminating evidence of his espionage. Although, actually, they did find one sketch in the garbage that he made of the harbor, but they deemed this not enough to actually go after him. Uh, He was kept under watch at San Diego between December and March uh, until 1942, and then he was moved to a camp in Arizona until August when he was returned to Japan under a diplomatic prisoner exchange. He worked uh, as a naval intelligence officer for the entire war, and when the United States began the occupation of Japan after they had uh, won the war, he went into hiding as a Buddhist monk, fearing that he was going to be prosecuted for his role in Pearl Harbor, which he won't be. It's very surprising. He never received official recognition for his services during the war, and afterwards he operated a failed candy business, which failed largely because everybody in his local community found out he was the spy responsible for Pearl Harbor, and they blamed him for the atomic bombs. So he ended up unemployed, he had no money, and his wife supported him for the rest of his life. He actually had quite a miserable end to his story, but he was the spy that kind of arguably allowed for Pearl Harbor to go down the way it did.
1: <laughs> very interesting story with him. Yes.
0: I don't think many people know about him, uh, nor the German intelligence officer who was on Hawaii, who made a few mistakes, mind you, and uh, yes. threatened to screw everything up, actually.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, it is the The whole story is very incredible. And most people don't know anything about it. And they in a lot of blame goes to well the Japanese there on the island, but the Japanese were very pro-American on the island, and yeah. that's you know that's that says a lot about the Japanese on the Oahu.
0: I find it interesting because I had to, I read his entire memoir in um, on the United States Naval site, and he goes kind of out of a limb to state that I didn't trust uh, the Japanese people on the island because I really believed that they were loyal to the United States. It's almost like he really wanted to press on that issue because well as we all know with the internment camps in the United States and Canada yeah it was awful
1: (laughs) yes yep exactly
0: but stating that I guess we'll call that section one the story of this spy we're going into I would say one of the, the least known facts about Pearl Harbor that is actually quite exciting and interesting the midget submarine attacks that were kind of slapped on at the end of the plans uh, they the ign didn't want to actually do this uh, they thought it was going to give away the surprise element to the whole attack and arguably it should have there's many opportunities the united states could have took here to actually realize what was going on but to uh to explain to the audience what is a midget submarine so uh japan unlike all the other nations of world war ii decided to make their fleet submarines extremely large uh, extravagantly large and they were cap- some of them were capable of holding what we call midget submarines. Um, Japan sent five submarines for the Pearl Harbor attack, the I-16, 18, 20, 22, and the 24, and each was carrying a Type A midget submarine. Although I think one of the subs wasn't a Type A, if I'm not mistaken. And they had left Kuri Naval District November the 25th to make an attack on Pearl Harbor. And on the 6th of December, the submarines came about 20 kilometers, don't know what that is in miles because I'm a Canadian, <laughs> at the mouth of Pearl Harbor and they launched the, mission, the midget submarines that were going to try and sneak into the harbor, which would have been quite a feat because it's not easy and there was uh, an anti-submarine net. And if anyone has seen the um, the Kings and Generals video on the attack on Darwin using midget submarines, I, I ended up writing that. It's actually a, a very similar situation. Now, I'm going to admit the documentation on which sub did what is actually a bit confusing and not everybody is 100% sure on exactly what happened. But as far as my research research has shown me, at around 1242, the i16 launched the M16 and even the names of the midget subs will be very confusing because they change depending on if the Japanese are talking about the Americans are talking about them. And this was the first midget sub uh, to go in This is followed at 1.16, the I-22 launches the HA-15. At 2.15, the I-18 launches the HA-17. Around 3 o'clock, the I-20 launches the HA-18. And then last, uh, at around 3.30 a.m., the I-24 launches the HA-19. All these subs had to go through the harbor entrance, which would have been about 65 feet deep. And it was guarded by an anti-submarine net that was about 35 feet deep. And um, in my research, I believe I read part of the operation, The sub, two of the subs are going to have to actually move the net a bit so that the other subs could go through, which seems like a very odd maneuver. I don't know how they would have managed that. But uh, actually, I'll leave it to you, Scott. I think you know a little bit about the very beginning of this involving the USS Condor.
1: Yeah, so so again, they they the Japanese really didn't want these mini subs because they thought it would give it away. When you have more moving parts to an event... One of those cogs could cause an issue. And very early in the morning, uh, the USS Condor, which was a tug, the Condor was out uh, outside the uh, entrance of Pearl Harbor. It spotted something. Now, it was not uncommon in the weeks prior. they, they, Everybody was reporting something. They were seeing something out in the water. Sometimes it was whales or whatever. So th- there was already people were noticing something. But the Condor saw something. They believed it was a conning tower. They signaled the ward. The ward was the on-duty destroyer that night. Uh, The ward came over to investigate what the Condor had seen, but they didn't find anything. Uh, They searched the area over and over again, didn't find anything. Everybody went back to uh, standard operating um, Mm -hmm. until the Antares. So the Antares had taken supplies um, out and they were pulling back a barge. And so the Antares was waiting to get in to the harbor uh, with this barge. It was actually waiting for a tug to come out and get the barge. I think the tug was the Sanqua So uh, while it was waiting, the on-duty signalman was Till Chapari, A.E. Chapari. I've, I've actually talked with him about this. He was out uh, watching where the barge was and he noticed something was out there. And so he called out the officer and the officer said, oh, a buoy had broken loose. You need to call in the number of the buoy so it can be reattached. So uh, Chapari looks through the binoculars and he says, sir, that is not a buoy. That is a little conning tower. It looks like a submarine. And so the officer's like, no, it's, it's got to be a buoy. There's no way there's a submarine that close to the entrance of Pearl Harbor.
0: Yeah, we might add so, to the audience. I don't think the United States had any awareness of midget submarine technology. They hadn't been developing anything.
1: Yes, exactly. And so this was so miniature. They they didn't know what it was. But um Chapari was saying, no, that is a submarine t- uh, conning tower. So uh, he got on the signal light, and he actually signaled the ward by light to let them know there is a strange object that's following us towards the entrance of Pearl Harbor. And when you listen to Till tell the story Chapari, A.E. Chapari tell the story, he said, he saw the ward off in the distance and that bow came up out of the water and that that ship came full go right at this little mini sub. and he saw them fire on it, drop depth charges. And, and we all know the story about the ward saying, Yeah, we, we hit it right in the conning tower and it disappeared. Um, you know, they dropped depth charges. Also, there was a PBY that was out on patrol and it yeah. was dropping uh, smoke pots and yeah. I think a couple depth charges also, but I think mainly smoke pots to mark the area for where it actually went down because once it started to sink, you know, obviously from the surface, you're not going to see it, but from their vantage point, they could possibly get a little bit of a shadow or whatever. So they're dropping smoke pots. They continue to look for it, it never resurfaces. Obviously, it's been sunk. Um, and then basically uh Chapari tells the officer, Hey, look, I'm gonna signal by light Pearl Harbor, the entrance, and tell them that we have just sunk a submarine. And the officer said, No, we weren't involved with it. The ward will. So the ward then does radio back in and say that we've engaged a submarine of course you know what happens with that it's going up the chain slowly and yeah. information is not passed in great detail um and you know the rest is is history with what ends up happening
0: it's actually interesting it's part of just i would call it a strange amount of events that all collide like dominoes where there was so many signals yes. The radar operators during Pearl Harbor, the fact that there was people having breakfast, the guy didn't take them seriously. Oh, it, it's B-17s coming in at the time. And there's yes. so many indicators of what was going on. And then everything just kept falling and falling and falling. Yeah. Yeah. And um it is amazing. Historians believe, I don't know if this was a confirmed one. This was the HA 18 that got sunk at this uh, particular event. And then the next one up would be the HA-19, which does get through the harbor entrance, apparently, uh, but it's unable to get there until the airstrikes actually commence, so this is going to be happening after uh, 7 a.m. in the morning, and it runs aground on a reef, uh, and it kind of gets damaged, its gyro compass malfunctions, it ex- actually exposes itself because its periscope goes out over the water, and it's the USS Helm that apparently sees it, opens fires on, opens fire on it, misses and the han 19's lower torpedo tube net gear cutter and vertical rudder are damaged i don't know if it's the first time it hits the reef because it hits the reef again trying in the scramble to get away ends up slipping off the reef its battery um, malfunctions or breaks so the chlorine gas gets into the uh, sub and it knocks out the crew and we have ensign kazio sakamaki uh, who loses consciousness he regains consciousness, tries to get the sub out again. Apparently, they're death-charged, although I'm not sure if this is confirmed. And uh, he tries to get the submarine to get back to his mother's submarine, which would have been the I-24, but uh, he hits a reef again. Um, he then tries to scuttle it. Uh, that fails. And he abandons the sub by swimming ashore, and uh, his crewmate ends up drowning and dying. I think the crewmate also tried to make the swim and drowned. I don't think he died in the sub. I don't really remember that. Uh, Kiyoshi Inagaki. Uh, but Sakamaki ends up becoming the first Japanese POW of the Pacific War.
1: Yes, and you know when he um, when he gets knocked out, the currents actually take the sub, if, if you can believe yeah. this, it goes from the entrance of Pearl Harbor all the way around Waikiki, around Diamond Head, and it ends up on the opposite side at Bellows Field. So right near Bellows Field um, is where it gets beached on a reef out there. Um, you know, the next day they're they're running these patrols, and here Sakamaki's laying on the beach. Uh, his 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 partner on the sub died in the surf, and they recovered his body. Uh, but they oh. brought a tractor out. They brought a tractor out, chained up the submarine, pulled it on shore. And again, what they did is it was it was the navy needed to know what in the world is this thing. It went through a full review and investigation to see what the Japanese had done. Uh, the incredible thing about that submarine is it still survives to this day. It's in Fredericksburg, Texas, at the National Museum of the Pacific War. So that part of the Pearl Harbor attack is is you can go see and touch, yeah. feel and see exactly how small this little thing is. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty big, but it, it's not the standard submarine. But you can go to Fredericksburg, Texas, uh, National Museum of the Pacific War, and see that submarine
0: yeah i uh the story of these submariners it, it was suicidal to get in these things, and having written what happened at Darwin, just the slightest if you hit anything, especially if a boat hits you, that sub is done, and you yes. are most likely not surviving the encounter it this these are suicide missions when you get into these things, and an yes. interesting little fact, the Japanese in their infinite non-wisdom of how to perform naval uh, doctrine. They envisioned, similar to how their fleet submarines would operate, only for uh, against warships, because mm-hmm. they didn't want to go after commercial vessels. They didn't envision right off the bat that they were going to go into harbors and use these midget subs to hit things. They thought during fleet maneuvers, the midget subs would leave their mother subs and then perform maneuvers against battleships or cruisers or something. I think that is absolutely insanity. <laughs> that Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, it, it makes more sense to go with the harbor approach, which is what the, the British and the Italians end up doing in World War II, mind you. And uh, well, the famous Tirpitz was hit by um, an X-class midget submarine the British had used. So it has had successful stories.
1: There are some strange weapons they had. Their their Katon, which is their basically their torpedo that somebody rode, and then they had their the little. The cherry blossom flying bomb, and they
0: had some very
1: unique. They had some very unique uh, equipment, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. And at um, at eight thirty a.m., I have it here. The USS uh, Monaghan. Mahan. Sorry, yeah, I was about to to mispronounce that one pretty bad. There, Uh, it was sortieing from Pearl Harbor via the North Channel to evade the aerial attacks, Uh, and nearby was the destroyer the USS Zane which reported seeing a submarine 200 yards astern of uh, the Medusa. The mine lair Breeze spots the submarine next, and then a seaplane tender, the Curtis, opens fire on it, and sees and opens fire on it, and by 837, it's spotted again, periscope, part of a conning tower is seen, about 1,200 yards to the starboard bow, of Monaghan. Uh, Monaghan now tries to ram her, as he uses Medusa and the tender are still opening fire on it, and apparently the submarine fires a torpedo at the Curtis and is hit by a five inch shell from the tender, which I had notes here saying probably decapitated her skipper. Which, wow, it's a hell of a shot. Yeah. And the sub was also raked with a uh, 0.5 caliber fire. And the torpedo misses the Curtis and hits a dock. And then she tries to fire another torpedo at uh, the destroyer, but it misses as well. And this one explodes against the uh, shores of the Fort Island. Uh, she gets rammed. And put down to the bed of uh, the harbor, about 30 feet deep, and uh, gets two depth charges laid against her, blowing her back up to the surface. And um, I think this is an unconfirmed one, but researchers think this was the Ha 15. I'm not so sure myself in this story.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. That, again, those the submarines are very confusing with their, their yeah. how they figured this all out. Out um, there is a, a pretty good story when they drop those je- depth charges. You got to remember that the harbor is very shallow. And when and those depth charges you, went yeah. off, uh, the concussion coming from the bottom actually lifted the stern of the Monaghan right out of the water because it was that close to, to them going this. And, and the unique thing about that submarine also is it was recovered um, mm. fairly quickly after the battle. And it was actually used as landfill uh, when they were repairing a pier uh, there at Pearl Harbor. That's, that's the story. Uh, the other story is that they recovered the bodies. That's how they could have found out that maybe that guy was decapitated. The other story is, is that they just left the bodies in there and buried them with a military funeral. Um, I th- Those are, again, these little stories that you hear. Yeah. Are the bodies in it? Are they not? Uh, was it really used as as landfill pure fill? You know, um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so.
0: And I don't have too much information on what is the high 17. I read that it was death charged and it sinks in the... Um, Kihi Lagoon. Kihi Lagoon just off Pearl Harbor. I'm not sure who actually depth charged it though.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's should be the sub that was found in 1960 yeah. and recovered, investigated. They the, the torpedoes were still on board that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that section of the sub was removed, taken out into deep water and disposed of. Um, that submarine is actually displayed in Japan. Yeah. And so they they recreated the front bow section again. Uh, for part of the display, so that that's that's another one that's been recovered.
0: I have here at 10:40, about 10:40 a.m. The Saint Louis reaches the first entrance buoy in the South Channel, and a midget submarine fires two torpedoes from around 2,000 yards off her starboard beam. Is this the famous photograph that came up a few years ago of a potential midget submarine firing?
1: um, well, the the photo that they've been using to say that um, there was a, a photo of a sub in the harbor was actually what they were trying to say is that it was actually in the harbor firing a battleship row. yeah, um, I know they've done some studies and if you look at that photo, it's right in the middle of the aerial torpedo attack, so you can see all the torpedo tracks running. Yes. So if this sub actually surfaced, it surfaced right in the middle of an aerial torpedo attack. How it didn't get hit is amazing. The other thing is, is I don't know if there's that many witnesses that said they saw a midget sub there by Battleship Row. Um, I, I'm not really sure about that one, but you'd think that if somebody really, there is a midget sub, um, we'd all know about it. Why Why is it still a mystery if it's there, if so many people were able to see it? so. There's a question with that, um, but there is a sub that's missing. You know, True. four subs have been found, the fifth one is missing. We don't know what the details are of that or what became of it or or where it was. um so it, it's again, this is part of that mystery of Pearl Harbor um with that. so it it's it's very interesting uh, to think about did that sub get there? i I don't know it's it's a very intriguing story,
0: yeah. And at 1041, the I-16 was patrolling west of Lane, receives a message, say, 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 success, success, success. This would have been a radio. And researchers think that this may have come from what would have been the Ha-16 from Lieutenant Yokoyama. And there was another, um, well, they allege there was another radio message at 1251, uh, which would have been from the same sub, presumably. Uh, saying unable to navigate, so obviously the sub is trying to get back to its mother submarine and it's unable to figure it out. Um, the Ha 16 was later found in 1944 with the torpedo tubes empty. Hmm. I'm not sure where, where this one was found. Was it found within the harbor?
1: That that I have um, the 19 was or well, there was one found at Bellows. The other one was the yeah. Monaghan. Uh, the third one was set found just outside the harbor that yeah. did have its torpedo tubes in 2002. Um, with uh, I think it's Noah was doing the research. They found the one that the ward had hit at the beginning yeah. of the battle. And that fifth one is the one I think that's missing. But again, it's the subs are not my, uh, Neither I, man. Have not been my focus. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not really, I'm not really sure.
0: And it still remains a mystery. I remember it was just a, yeah. a few years ago when they were showing that, that photo, which, like you said, it probably is not a mission submarine, mind you. But if if that is credible evidence, uh, they the same people that were putting up that photo in a news article were reporting that it probably is sunk somewhere in the harbor and it just has yes. been yet to be found. And, uh, I mean, there is possibilities. When it came to uh, the Darwin <laughs> attack, it was some amateur divers were outside of uh, the harbor and they came upon it quite a while out in the ocean and currents just take things to silly places and you know, yes never know. But uh, that's basically uh, most of the story for the midget subs, unless you have something to add uh, maybe about the findings or anything.
1: No, it just, I, I, it is, it is a story, another story part of this puzzle that, that a lot of times doesn't get really looked at. So it's a, it's an intriguing piece. It's, it's a unique piece with this, you know, this, this cog that of all these moving parts that this was implemented and again it's it's a story of we had a warning and the warning was going up the chain of command but yet it wasn't interpreted properly to put people on alert you know so and again it's it's another one of those pieces that was like you missed so I, th-
0: I think one of my favorite outcomes of this is when it comes to what is i guess the the second version of this what happens in um in the harbor in uh, sydney harbor so i've been saying darwin assault, excuse me sydney harbor when sydney harbor has the midget submarine attack um there is multiple sightings there is multiple reports that are done with lights and they're all disregarded they go up the chain of command the chain of command mind you was actually very intoxicated there was a party going on at the time <laughs> but having already learned of this occurrence that happened at pearl harbor because the allies would have shared information that midget submarines are in fact a thing and this is something the japanese are, have acquired I, I it just shocks me that in sydney they, they didn't think that this would be the possibility especially given they were preparing for such an attack they had a lot of submarine boom nets put up but yeah
1: yeah it is amazing
0: and uh, well, the third section to all this, um, I, I don't know if this is one that people don't particularly know much about, but it, it is significant. It's the military facilities that were hit prior to the ships, because ultimately, that they that's what was hit for the first wave. And then when the second wave comes, they actually hit other facilities. And, um, I guess it kind of ties in a bit with the whole radar situation. I'm not sure if, are you familiar with the whole story of how that went down? Maybe you want to tell the audience the, uh, the great fumble from the radar perspective.
1: So, so at a point, we had a new thing, this radar. Okay. So these two, uh, guys from Wheeler or Scofield were operating, uh, this radar station at a point. Um, and what would happen is, uh, periodically. B-17s would come in from Hamilton Field, which is in California. It's just north of San Francisco. It's about a 12-hour 13-hour flight from Hamilton Field to Hickam. So to aid their move or their transfer from Hamilton to Hickam, they, um, the radio station there would, would play music all, all night so they could use that to get in there. So Opana Point picks up a large blip of aircraft and they decide they better call it in. So they call it in to Fort Shafter. I think it was Fort Shafter. And they say, hey, we have a large blip. What do you want us to do? And the thought is, it's gotta be the B-17s coming in. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And so that whole uh, piece of the puddle there, again, um, it's a coincidence. The B-17s are coming in, but yet the the, the Japanese are coming in at the same time. So it, mm-hmm. it's a total coincidence. Um, of this happening and it was dismissed. So uh, these guys continue monitoring the the radar blip and they actually were, you know, they were documenting what it was doing. And finally they basically were like, okay, it's, it's done. Let's we're, we're out of here. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so there, there, there was that, that morning also, besides the B-17s, there were quite a few uh, Piper Cubs and other planes that were in the air. Yeah.
0: So yeah. as the,
1: as the Japanese were coming from the North, Approaching Oahu from the north, um, there was a small little piper flying in that vicinity. Um, that, that actually little airplane that was there uh, that was flying to the north is actually at the Pacific Aviation Museum, which is on Fort Island. And it hangs from the ceiling uh, up there. But um, they saw the planes coming in and they realized, oh, we better get out of here. Uh, they, they took off and they went and got out of the way. So when we're talking about the bases, most people think that when you say Pearl Harbor, only Pearl ships, Harbor was yeah. attacked. Yeah. That it's it. This is a this is an attack on a naval base. Uh, what most people don't understand is that Oahu has a number of military bases, and most of those bases are um, aircraft oriented. So you the have actual
0: defense of the island is the aircraft. Correct. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And what what what's the biggest threat if you're if you're attacking somebody? How would you be found at that time? in, in the 40s. Aircraft, you need, to, you need to make sure that you don't have aircraft that can pursue you back, find your fleet, all this. So as the Japanese were coming towards Oahu, they start breaking into their attack formations and they separate and they start making their routes. And in reality, the very first location attacked um, was Wheeler Field at about 751. Um, and it was dive bombers and fighters that came in and hit it really hard. Um now they they didn't they flew, actually flew by Haliʻiwa which was be a little bit further north but they didn't know that that was a was being used it was kind of an auxiliary field so they kind of overflew it they missed it there were planes there but they missed it hit Wheeler Field first Well after they they're continuing down the island continuing south the next places that they're going to hit is going to be Kaneohe and Eva. And Eva is is just to the west of Pearl Harbor. So as the planes are coming down and heading towards the east, heading towards Pearl Harbor, they go over Eva, they strike Eva, they also hit Kaneohe. Um, and so those bases are hit. Now this is this is roughly at about 753. So at 751, Wheeler is hit, 753, uh Eva, Kaneohe is hit, and then what ends up happening is the planes are now on Pearl Harbor. And Due to confusion, you know they had a they had a very good plan of how they wanted to do this. If it was a surprise, you know torpedo planes would go in first. If it was complete surprise, because of what they needed, well, they're to do.
0: slower too, and the torpedo planes would need the boost of, right. they had to be there first. Yeah,
1: and, and so there was confusion in the signaling of the firing of the flares, um, and because there was confusion there, the flares were seen by one group, and then the, the second flare because there wasn't any movement, they fired a second flare. Now, all of a sudden, a group says, oh, my God, we got two flares up. That means the surprise is lost. And the dive bombers head in. So Pearl Harbor and Hickam are hit at 755. That's when they get hit. And, and that's, that's kind of the progression. So these, these fields were hit in different time frames. And then Bellows was actually attacked much later at 830. Uh, they realized that there were planes there. And so they decided to hit Bellows Field. Um, so there were multiple bases that were hit. So when we talk about Pearl Harbor, it's not just a Navy thing. There is a lot of stuff going on, a lot of different bases that were hit. So that's kind of the, how it all goes down in that first wave. Um, and that's that's kind of how it's, it, it was done.
0: Yeah, and there's another aspect to the, the story of Pearl Harbor that people kind of don't understand that we have the Navy and the Army working together at Pearl Harbor, but the Army overwhelmingly has control of a lot of the area. They have control of these air bases and such, and they had jurisdiction over a lot of things. But communications, you know, it goes with the Japanese, it goes with the Americans, inter-service rivalry. um, There was issues that came at play during this event too. And uh, in a later section, when we talk a bit about more conspiracy theories, there's an element of this to that, where there's a lot of he said, she said, between the army and the Navy for the United States as to, who did what? Who said what? And arguably, maybe some people were covering for people. We don't know. I know the uh, the story about how the radio operators were talking to um, the guy at the uh, the station. Do you know what his name was? Who answered their call? Oh, I um, I knew you were gonna t- probably ask me that.
1: Um, but it's a it's a it's a, it's a unique name too. Um, I'll, I I have to look. Oh. Up.
0: Needless to say, the report of exactly how this conversation goes down has been through a lot of scrutiny, and there are some bizarre questions as to why, yes, he told them, okay, yeah, these B-17s are coming in from, uh, I think it was from San Diego or Los Angeles, yeah, they were coming in and we're expecting them, but... It is it is a little bizarre that he was so amped up to just stop his conversation while the other guys at the radio station, I believe they just wanted to get their breakfast or something at the time, so they were <laughs> ready to pack it up. And they also had never seen uh, the size of the blip on it. They didn't know exactly what that meant. So there was you know some ignorance to the new technology, mind you. It was, brand, it was yes. pretty brand new. But yeah, it's just uh, another element to... What a lot of people have fed into, which led to conspiracy theories later, but yes. I, I feel that this section kind of pulls into the next one. They go hand in hand, which is like the extent of the damage to to everything in Pearl Harbor. you know it, it's not just the ships. there's damage that was done to the, some of the facilities, uh, and there was a lot of damage that was not done, which uh, is pretty crucial. But maybe you can talk a bit about the hardest hit stuff at Pearl Harbor for those who wouldn't know. for example, the the Arizona, I think everyone knows, but uh, how the Arizona right. was hit.
1: Yeah, there there are quite a few ships that are, are severely damaged. Um, when you talk about Pearl Harbor, yeah, they focused on the ships and yes. and the planes. Uh, but there's infrastructure that is is crucial. That yeah. that's the crucial part of this. Um, and I've talked with so many Pearl Harbor survivors about what they did, and what they saw, and. You know, if you look at, you know, I sat a full day with John Finn, Medal of Honor recipient from Kaneohe. Um, you know, they were bombing all the planes, the PBYs on the water, planes that were sitting there. But they, and, and they hit a couple of the hangars, but yet they left a lot of the infrastructure there that they could use that to repair things. And the, and the same thing happened at Pearl Harbor. You have all of these repair facilities at Pearl Harbor that weren't really hit. And so you have all these ships that are sunk. Um,
0: but they're put back into service, um, in a shallow harbor, mind you. So correct. Easy to get.
1: That's another key feature of this is we're kind of lucky that this took place at Pearl Harbor and not at Lahaina roads because that's deep water and the ships would all have been lost. So you would have lost, you know, all of these ships. Um, but there's only three ships that actually out of all of this were permanently lost. That's the Arizona and the Utah, which are still at Pearl Harbor and the Oklahoma. The Oklahoma was actually being towed back to California, um, as and it had a bunch of patches that they'd put on it. The patches, something gave on board the Oklahoma. It started to take on water. The two tugs turned around to try to get it back to Pearl Harbor, and it went down quickly. Luckily, the subs were able to cut the cables, or they would have been lost too. But think about this, out of that all that attack... Only three ships were permanently lost. Everything else was put back into service and used in the war. Uh, that is incredible because of that infrastructure where we were able to repair. Um, some of it was repaired at Pearl Harbor, others, temporary repairs, and they were sent back to California where they made permanent repairs and they were put back into service. But that, that's critical. You know, um we can talk about the oil storage facilities <clears throat> there at, at Pearl Harbor. You know, that stuff wasn't hit. Yep. Um would that be a critical if we didn't have the oil reserves to make sure that our ships were uh still capable of doing what they needed to do there in the, in the Pacific? If if those infrastructure bases would have been hit or those structures would have been hit, we probably would have had to take everything back to California.
0: Yeah, you would have we would to have been delayed.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, we'd have to abandon it. And, and that would have delayed us 6 months to a year to get back into the offensive, but because because we were able to do this we were able to get back into we were able to get back into the offensive mode relatively quickly uh with like midway um you know so it, it's it was kind it, of a it, really, at it originates a program program. yeah yeah so
0: oh I, I can just tell the audience uh just for those who might not know admiral yamamoto when given the reluctant task <clears throat> mind you he of course, as much as this was his uh, his baby that he made uh, the Pearl Harbor operation, he never wanted to go to war in the first place because he knew the consequences and he knew the productive capabilities of America, quote unquote, the sleeping giant, although it wasn't him who actually said that quote. That's a whole other thing. But uh, four things uh, were failed at Pearl Harbor. The one that everyone knows, obviously, is that the United States carriers, they were out of Pearl Harbor at the time, so they weren't hit. The repair yards And it goes alongside the oil tanks, the submarine base, and the old HQ building were all intact. They weren't hit. The old HQ building is actually where Station Hypo is going to be. So that is the uh, cryptanalysts that will break the code leading to the success at Midway, which is ironic in a lot of ways. But all of these put together, the whole purpose of Pearl Harbor was to take the United States out of the Pacific for about six months at minimum but the United States was technically operational right after because they had the means limited mind you, very limited. You couldn't really go on the offensive, but Halsey and others, they did perform carrier raids and they did threaten They had the Doolittle raid, for example, greatly changed uh, the IGN's tactics. They were, they lost face. They couldn't believe that uh, the whole islands, let alone the emperor's palace was flown over. It really, uh, it was a crushing blow to Yamamoto. He was physically sickened by it uh, when it happened. And, um, this is a great oversight, Pearl Harbor. Particularly the oil tanks. If, like you said, if those were damaged, all the unbelievable amount, I think there was 60, I can't remember the numbers of army personnel in Hawaii, but uh, after Pearl Harbor, it's increased extra, like extravagantly, they would not be able to service Hawaii. They would have had to pull back to the, to the coast. This would have completely destroyed the perimeter for the United States. And Yamamoto had always wanted to extend the perimeter. And if he could have had something along the lines of Midway, the Central Pacific is the Japanese play yard. It would have changed the war. They would have been able to secure more islands quicker, get more of the resources from the Dutch East Indies. It would have been much more of a catastrophe. All right. Oh, here, this is what I was excited for. And this is actually why Scott is here. I wanted one section particularly on something that you found. I'm gonna let you just tell the story of the footage. All right,
1: um, well, yeah, I, I've always been fascinated with Pearl Harbor. This has been from a, when I was a little small kid. Um, you watch Tor, Tor, Torah Tora, and it just, oh, yeah. it, it just something happens and, and it, it fascinated me and led me on to this whole amateur historian thing. But my, my main focus has always been photographs and, and films. And, you know, I, I love watching documentaries, but I, I noticed when you watch a documentary about Pearl Harbor, it's it's always the same footage and it's not actual footage. So when you're watching these dive bombers, they're like, those are American dive bombers painted like Japanese. And it's like, I, I don't get it. You mean to tell me that uh, there's no actual photographs of the attack and, and you think, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe people didn't have cameras or films, but, We know that Hawkinson had his camera on board the Solace because we see the Arizona explosion uh, from the Solace and other various things. The thing about that film footage too is he filmed a lot that is never ever put anywhere else, um, which is amazing why we don't use it or that it's not used. So I I just became, um, video production is not my, that's not what I do for a living, it's a hobby and i thought you know what i'm going to i'm going to do a documentary about pearl harbor because i don't like the way documentaries i see on tv were run <clears throat> you get a documentary the first eight minutes is information you go to a commercial break it comes back and it's four minutes of recap and then it's four minutes of new and so on so i started traveling america <clears throat> interviewing pearl harbor survivors um, and i did this every weekend that i had off from my normal job I would fly somewhere and I'd go to a Pearl Harbor event. I'd record their stories and I recorded probably 75, 80 stories uh, on video. And I realized that you need film footage to do this. So what I did is I went to the uh, national archives and I really started looking at everything that's there. And what you become instantly aware of is that there is a mountain of stuff, but nobody ever goes for it. And you know, because I have a passion for Pearl Harbor history, I was willing to sit there and go through everything that I could possibly do. And so what ended up happening is I got all these films back home. I started running them through a computer and I realized that there was some stuff here that I had never seen before ever. And uh, I was like, wow, I was fascinated. Uh, there's a lot of Japanese plane footage where people were shooting with you know, their little hand cameras and you can see Japanese planes flying by and it's like, why don't they use this stuff? Because it, it's shaky. It's during combat and it's, it makes it, it makes it a really,
0: I've seen myself one. It's hard to, yeah, see must stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was like, okay, but what ended up happening is running through this film on my computer, uh, film come the way the computer analyzes it, it takes it and puts it in 30 frames per second. That's how the, the editing machine works, which is our modern day, 30 frames a second, And I kept seeing this flash in between these segments of film. And I kept thinking, what is this flash? Why is it there? Is it it an edit break or what is it there? So I slowed the computer down and I took individual frames and made them pictures. And I started clicking through individual frames and I'm like, wow, that looks like the Arizona explosion filmed from a Japanese airplane. And I'm like, I wonder if this is one of their propaganda films because the Japanese were notorious for making these propaganda films. And um, they would put this out, and some people actually use it in documentaries, saying, oh, look at this, look at this attack footage, but it's a propaganda film. So I, I was analyzing it, is this the propaganda footage? And I realized real quickly that no, it was not, because it was filmed from fairly high altitude. And so then I started looking at the picture, I'm like, okay, there's a bright white ship behind this explosion, what is that? That's the Solace, the hospital ship Solace. And I started looking at other pieces in here going, wait a minute. This is set up exactly, this is Pearl Harbor. This is the attack. That is the explosion of the Arizona film from a Japanese airplane. So what I did is I took a screenshot of that and I sent it to the superintendent uh, there at the Arizona Memorial. Her name was Kathy Billings. And uh, I said, look what I, look, look at this. Can you look at this? Um, And then other people started to get involved with it, Daniel Martinez and and a couple other people. And the next thing you know, uh, they asked for a copy of it. I sent them a copy and Kathy Billings said, you've discovered something that's never been seen. And I'm like, well, I re- I don't know if I could say discovered. I-, I mean, it's it's always been there. Just somebody just hasn't went and found it and brought it to the public's attention. And so um, Kathy Billings had me fly out to Hawaii. They held a huge press conference. Uh, the media was there. Uh, as a matter of fact, CNN uh, did a story about it uh, when I got back home um, there in the, in the mainland and um, I gave it to the Park Service and said here use it for future analysis of the attack um, so I Used it in my documentary Pearl Harbor the real story and so, you know back to this this documentary, you know i got all these stories. I got all this film footage And what I did is I I thought, you know what, I don't want to cover a lot of aspects of, you know, what was the history of the Japanese and what happened afterwards. I basically focused on basically the 24 hours of December 7th. So, you know, I interviewed the pilots that were coming in from the Enterprise and, you know, how they got, some of them got shot down and were killed. Um, You know, so it's those guys, it's Til from the Antares, it's it's guys at Wheeler Field and Bellows. So we put this whole thing together. And what I did is I said to myself, I am not going to use anything that's not authentically taken um, that day. So I didn't want to use anything. uh, So I went around and I collected all the 14th Naval District photos. There's thousands of them. Um, I traveled to every location I could possibly find to collect photographs. um, The National Archives for their films. And that's what we put together. We put together a documentary. I think it runs almost three hours um, and it's all authentic films. And we put that documentary or that clip in there uh, to show this new stuff. And what was, what was unique is, you know, that the park service gave me some pretty good kudos about finding it. It has been used in another, other a number of other documentaries that you see on uh, like the discovery channel and all that, which that's fine. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, my research helped them put something together, but, to me, that was a, a huge thing in my life to find that that film footage, and I have it uh, for anybody to watch on my YouTube channel.
0: Yeah, and you can so. click right here to go see that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible, like to be to find something like that. It's, it's yeah. such an incredible event too—the explosion of the Arizona. I can't even imagine what that would look like being on ground level to see something like that. Oh my
1: God. Yeah you know you know what's amazing is uh the Hawkinson film was actually shot in color mm. and um what it's kind of sad, so that that film footage was duplicated in black and white because it was much cheaper at that time in the forties to do black and white. that's why we always see the black and white footage,
0: yeah,
1: but the color film, if you do some research to look for the color film, um, apparently it was stolen or taken from the National Archives, and all we're left is with the black and white now there are a couple film frames that you see on different websites and other various locations, a color frame, but it, it is, if you look at that explosion of the Arizona, it is just mind boggling. And especially when you look at it from the sky, you know, when you look at it from the Hawkinson film, it's, it's incredible. It, it's mind boggling. You think, Oh my God. But when you see it from the sky and how big this ball of fire was, yeah, it is mind boggling. It really is. And I mean, I used to be a member of the uh, Arizona Reunion Association, which is the veterans of the USS Arizona, and I used to go to their events uh, and talk with them. And when you hear them talk about that flame and the heat and what they saw, um, it is just oh my god! I mean, I just uh, I, the stories are are amazing. I mean, I I just I. I it's i I can't even really tell you the stories because some of them are so graphic yeah. but what these guys saw and did, and it's like, wow, unbelievable what they what those guys went through
0: and just for, for members of the audience to know Pearl Harbor it was almost two thousand five hundred u s personnel were killed, and about roughly almost half was the Arizona, I believe yeah, I think it's in
1: one thousand one hundred and seventy
0: seven in a single instance yes ins- insanity <laughs> that that many people were killed. It's horrible.
1: Yeah, you, 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 a lot of those guys were abso- absolutely probably vaporized. Um, you know, and then I, stuck it,
0: underneath when it was yeah. sinking, so they were trapped. So
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think about this, Admiral Kidd, if if um, Admiral Kidd's Naval Academy ring, so he was on the bridge. When the bridge collapsed forward after the explosion, his naval academy ring was found welded into the top of the conning tower. Wow. Nothing else of him, I think, was found, but his academy ring was. I mean, that is that is Can you imagine that? That So, I mean, it's just, it's unreal.
0: Well, it's, thank you so much for telling us this story because it's just like you said, you found something completely new and it's an incredible feat. And the last section of this podcast, which is, I have to admit more of the, on the silly variety is this conspiracy that's been around forever at this point, ever since, well, ever since the event itself had happened, it's, been called the backdoor theory by some but it's the advanced knowledge conspiracy uh, i think even in michael bay's pearl harbor film they allude to some of the elements of this it's the idea that fdr himself or the united states government knew the attack and everything that was going to happen but they allowed it to occur because it would have allowed the united states to enter the war but yeah, because of the neutrality stance the united states had taken in- just before world war ii it was the back door for fdr to finally get in and there are hundreds of different stories involved in this conspiracy theory there's so many different pieces of it in the end i think any historian would tell you like no this wasn't a conspiracy by the united states government nor fdr there was no illuminati involved in this but it is just ah. It just so happens to be very convenient because, well, there were those like Churchill or any of the allies wanted America to be in the war, of course, and they were hoping for a moment like this to occur. So they were pushing for things to happen. And perhaps maybe Britain, maybe they had come across some of the information. They didn't share it with the Americans. We don't know. There could have been something like this. But uh, I thought we could just talk about any of the elements maybe you know. And I did write some notes of some of the various elements involved where people believed that this was the thing. And I, I will add uh, off the bat, I, I just, I always like um, this analogy. It kind of goes hand in hand with Occam's razor. The thing about the JFK shooting that makes people so unsettled and the conspiracy theories about that is the idea that Os- Oswald and an individual just went and shot the president of the United States and that was it. Frightens people. Because there's no fate involved, there's no destiny, it's just a random occurrence. And Pearl Harbor, much like the shooting of JFK, you can piece all of these things together, but in essence, it, was, it went down the way it did. And uh, FDR probably did not know. Maybe he knew, I mean, the United States was fully aware that Japan was going to attack them at some point, and they were planning uh, with War Plan Orange and Rainbow Plan 5 which involved more so the um, the defenses of the Philippines and what they would do in the South Pacific. Pearl Harbor was a lower priority. They believed the Japanese might attack something more akin to the Panama Canal. So there's reasonable doubts as to why the United States was taken by surprise. I know yourself, I'm sure you've heard multiple aspects of this.
1: Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. When something tragic happens, People want answers. Yeah. How could this? How could this happen? Exactly. And when they don't get those answers that they want, they immediately go to, "Oh, there's a conspiracy here that did this to us." And 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 it is complete. It is nonstop. And and when you look at various documents, so I mean, we 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 had an intelligence program that was was actually. Looking at stuff. All right. Yeah. Did we know exactly? No. It's they're educated guesses. Uh, You know, you don't really know. You know, there, I was just uh, glancing at some stuff. Uh, Apparently, there's some documents that have still not been released about Pearl Harbor. Did the Japanese actually have radio silence the entire way across the Pacific? (laughs) Yes or no? Well, you know, because witnesses are saying, well, no, we heard them talking, we heard communication, and we were able to pick. So, so again, that goes back into this conspiracy thing, you know, um, I have heard
0: the atmosphere could have bounced the radios. So even if they were forming the radio silence the way they could have been, Tokyo giving them some information could have bounced off and somehow made its way over.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's all, it's so, it's just because people want answers, you know? And if you, if you look at it, you know, um, if you look at it today through the, you know, it, you have to look at people what they thought in in the '40s, and they sometimes people thought that the Japanese weren't capable of carrying this out.
0: They thought the Germans were. The, the Germans did this it. yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and, and so you you get that with uh, Bernard Kuhn, who was you was working in Oahu, uh, sending messages by light from his rooftop or whatever to the Japanese consulate. So so that brings in oh the Germans were involved. It this is the German conspiracy. You know, so it, it there's a lot of different aspects to this that really um you know you just like you know you more than likely we will never know. That that's the the, the end of it. You you're not going to know, but there are so many different theories um I mean we could you could probably talk 10 hours about about this, yeah. You know?
0: I I was I have notes here and I stopped myself because it ironically cuz we're talking about conspiracy theory i was going down the rabbit hole too much and i realized it <laughs> but it anybody who has the time i don't know i don't recommend going to wikipedia it is actually worth typing in uh Con- pearl harbor conspiracy theory it'll lead you to the wikipedia page it is extremely long i think maybe longer than the page on pearl harbor's attack and uh it's it's worth it to see what people have come up with and, and there's interesting testimony there's contradicting reports of minutes and what people said and then there's oh this is false information but i did find some key bits of information that i myself had no knowledge about and I, I thought it was kind of interesting uh i'm no expert on um cryptology and how the decoding worked but when it came to um the purple traffic which we talked about with uh, the spy the jn25 code uh a was broken prior uh jn25b that code came in a little bit later, think of forty-one, and they had broken some of it, but they didn't break all of it. And prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, they didn't have the full code. They couldn't have decrypted everything. And as many people know, um, when the Japanese were going to hand in the document stating that they were breaking diplomatic relations to the United States, uh, they were actually reading those documents before they brought it over, the Americans, and they had uh, decoded about 13 parts of the 14 of, of 14 parts of it uh so when the japanese actually showed up late um the guy who received the paper had already known about the attack and everything and they had decoded everything and he was pretty angry uh, to say the least but uh they never in all these things that you hear about with the conspiracy theories there's never any allegations that the United States ever found any codes whatsoever that talked about Pearl Harbor being attacked. Like there was no codes that showed Pearl Harbor to be a target. There was all sorts of other areas, uh, Singapore, for example, Manila and and that, which obviously were part of the Japanese attack plans. Uh, But another element to this that people have to understand is these codes were broken by people. They were short-staffed. They weren't working as hard as they will be after Pearl Harbor, that's for sure. And just to break the numbers for everybody, the uh, JN25B code was much more difficult than its predecessor to break. It had 55,000 valid words. Before Pearl Harbor, the estimation of how much was broken out of it was about 7%. So that would have been 3,800 words out of the 55,000. This doesn't take into account how many messages that that were intercepted Uh, during the time, let's say between September and December, which would have been in, uh, I have here a figure saying 26,581 messages. You have 7% of the code broken. You have that many messages and anything that said Pearl Harbor was considered low priority because like I said, it was uh, deemed mostly commercial information. It It probably slipped by the people. Occam's razor, again, these are human beings. They were looking at what was priorities. This wasn't a priority. Another thing was we have to, you know, give kudos to the Japanese. This was, this whole plan was built on surprise. They wanted to make sure that they were going to surprise the enemy. Radio silence from testimony from Jap- from certain Japanese figures was they kept radio silence. Although, like you had alluded to, there was a story about a ship that apparently heard something. The SS Lurline, I believe uh, it was called. And they allege that there was, um, or people allege that there was a radio transmission that had something in Morse code that they may have heard. But Morse code, uh, it's not, you know, there's different versions of it for different languages and such. So even if they had heard this Morse code, they probably wouldn't recognize it or understand what it meant. So how do they predict that there's a Japanese attack? This this kind of falls through the cracks, that story. But uh, apart from that, uh, the Japanese had complete radio silence. I I believe myself that they met this because this is the most important task the Butai would have been doing. It would have kept radio silence and they did really ridiculous things like they closed locks on every radio equipment. They put all these things over it so that they could not use it on purpose. And uh, there's multiple people in the IGN that said that this was a fact on multiple different ships. So I don't see why they would be lying about such a thing. Why would they be involved in a conspiracy theory, you know, for example? And uh, the Japanese also performed a lot of deception. They had a lot of radio chatter coming out of different areas to, you know, make the United States think, oh, our, our carrier divisions one and two are actually over here in Kyushu. And they're performing the routine maneuvers. And we've been doing this for months. So they really, for months, like allowed the Americans to think, okay, this is how everything's going. And they duped them. I mean, that is Occam's razor. It's a surprise attack that worked. What else to say? Uh, The thing that everyone always points out is the American carriers were not there at Pearl Harbor, but I always found this is one of the simplest things to answer when it comes to conspiracy theories. They were on routine maneuvers. Yes. So I have it here, because I didn't remember this myself until I looked it up. The USS Enterprise and the Lexington were on missions to deliver fighters to Midway and Wake uh, because of uh, my best friend, General Douglas MacArthur, who I talk nonstop about wanted b-17s brought over to the philippines that he would have used to defend them which he really didn't and he blundered that pretty badly uh and then the saratoga was uh i think getting repaired or having some work done it's a simple answer and it's a extremely plausible answer a lot of people point out this as being the conclusive evidence that they knew something because they how if the carriers weren't there and everyone makes a point yamamoto yeah, wanted to get those carriers. Uh, this isn't a point either, because the the doctrine of the day was the big guns club. Uh, battleships were the most important thing. I mean, there was visionaries like Yamamoto who came around to the idea that carriers were probably more useful. But even he himself always envisioned a decisive naval battle using battleships across the Pacific. Both sides in this believed that. They targeted the battleships in the end of Pearl Harbor. They didn't target the carriers. So. Yep. It's another part of the conspiracy theory that I just I find it doesn't hold up and there's yeah. all sorts of other parts. So, do you, actually do you know any uh, any other aspects to this? Maybe I don't. Know.
1: There, there there's we've covered pretty much everything. <laughs> I mean, there there are so many. And and again, you, this whole thing comes up is I think Americans um when something happens to Americans
0: who they can't is that believe.
1: Yeah, awesome. so, so we, there's no way this happened to us. There's something evil at lurk or something did because I, I, that's just the way it is. I mean, it even happens today with different things that happen in the world. You know, you'll hear something about, oh, this, you know, it, it's just, it's the way we've always thought. And it's, you know, it's just the way it is. I mean, um, but you know what? It, it, it they, they surprised us. They caught us and, and we weren't prepared. That's That's all you can say.
0: And it, it is kind of funny how narratives live for so long. I, I did a podcast with another individual uh, who did his PhD on the Battle of Hong Kong, uh, which involved Canadian soldiers in World War II. It's the only one in the Pacific that we were significantly involved in. There were Canadian volunteers in the American military, but it's very small scale. And there is a narrative forever that uh, Churchill, specifically Churchill and the British, basically sold the Canadians to die uh we were placed into hong kong just before the battle would occur and we were there to put up a symbolic defense but we were basically just being sacrificed this narrative lives very strongly to this day um the 1990s was a very famous canadian war documentary that just goes on about this and it's not actually true um there is there is some things that went on there with churchill but it's not as if they're making a symbolic uh, sacrifice for the Hong Kong. They they had certain beliefs about what the Japanese were capable of. There was a lot of blundering. They dropped the ball, just like a Pearl Harbor. But uh, narratives are built off little pieces, little by little, and word of mouth, and it just changes everything. And uh, yep. I'll bring up the fact that people never bring up uh, other plausible answers to this. Japan attacks the United States of America. Doesn't mean the United States of America is going to declare war on Germany. A lot of this conspiracy theory relies on the backdoor process of America going to war with Germany because it was Europe first. That was a strategy that was adopted during World War II, uh, strongly adopted. I mean, Admiral King fought through the nail to get stuff brought over to the Pacific. So it doesn't yes. really fall in line with a lot of the conspiracy theories. And um, the, the- I-, I think the only thing that I could hand conspiracy theorists is the possibility that the Dutch or the British had information, didn't share it, I think maybe there could be some plausible evidence there because if anybody could break codes, it was the British. Certainly, especially World War One, World War Two, they were masters of it. And the United States did a great job too, but kudos to the British and the Enigma machine, which was only found out, it's was only declassified not too long ago. But uh, stating that, uh, it's one of the sillier aspects of Pearl Harbor, I find.
1: yeah. 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 Unique story. The whole the whole thing is a very unique uh, story.
0: Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, perhaps just for the audience members to hear one more time, if you could just shout out your YouTube channel, just to let them know what they could find there. Why they should go see your stuff? Um, well,
1: it's uh, SFR Productions, uh, and uh, you can find it. It's uh, the top of the page. There are a couple SFR Productions apparently on uh, YouTube, but mine you'll see the Pearl Harbor uh, Memorial, the Arizona Memorial on the top. Um, a new thing that I'm actually doing is like I said, I, I travel a lot. I've started a new uh, series on my page called history adventures. And the, the concept with history adventures is people always have their phones and they're looking at their phones and while you're sitting waiting for the doctor or something, what do you do? You scroll on your phone. So history adventures, I'm taking people on trips around the world, uh, to different military bases, different military battlefields. And, um, I make them into little 10 minute or less little snippets a little bit of history and then what you see today so the newest thing that we're doing on our page is history adventures um, where we take you around but you also when you go to my page uh, my youtube page you're going to find lots of pearl harbor stuff Um, you're going to find a lot of stuff on tarawa Um, i'm very excited about tarawa because next year for november 2023 that is the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Tarawa in November, and I will be going there for three days um, to film, to tour around, um, and do a bunch of stuff. So you'll find a bunch of films on Tarawa. You're going to find um, some Civil War stuff um, that I that I put together. That, that's from productions that I did long ago. Um, also, if you go to my Facebook SFR page on my Facebook page, uh, you're going to find. Tons of photo albums where I just share thousands of photographs. Uh, I have an album on Iwo Jima that's 800 plus photos. I have Tarawa photos, there's probably 500 photos there. Um, I have Peleliu photos, Guadalcanal photos, Pearl Harbor, you name it. So you know, and I, I love sharing history with people. So again, my YouTube page is SFR Productions and my Facebook page is SFR Productions also where you can go and get photos. So um I enjoy doing that. I enjoy history. It's 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 a passion of mine.
0: All right. So please check out his channel. And thank you again for coming here and thank you again for sharing the story from this photo this photographic stuff that you found. It's such an incredible story that I just love that. Even to this day, we still find things in history that have been not uncovered yet. That's what makes it so exciting.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a great honor being on the show tonight. Thank you.
0: This has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.